Dress, The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Cass, this week was the first Monday in May, and you know what that means. I do, and so do our listeners, I am sure. That means it was the long-awaited return of the Met Gala after, I mean, I guess we had a Met Gala in September of last year, but this is the first time the Met Gala has returned to its regularly scheduled program after the pandemic, so. Yes, 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 yes. We are so excited, and this is our annual, what has now become an annual thing, April. We talk about the exhibition it accompanies, and of course, we talk about all of the fashion and specifically the fashion history moments to be found on the red carpet. And this is part two of a two-part exhibition. Previously, the former incarnation was called In America, A Lexicon of Fashion. But this one is slightly retitled. It's called In America, An Anthology of Fashion. And so the lexicon is still very much on view. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this was kind of the additional part that opened. And whereas lexicon is a little bit more, I mean, how do we explain it, April? There wasn't a lot of exhibition design. It's a bunch of really iconic pieces and lesser known designers featured um, in the downstairs galleries at the CI that really was about highlighting the literal lexicon of fashion. So it was all these different designers accompanied by a word that encapsulated their aesthetic or their philosophy. But this exhibition, an anthology of fashion, is actually staged in the American wing period rooms of the Met. So basically, if you've been to the Metropolitan Museum, there's all these wonderful period rooms that are staged to represent different eras in American history. And so we have all of these wonderful fashions staged as tableau vignettes in 13 rooms. And what is so cool about this, April, is that the Met worked with nine film directors to create the narratives that are on view in these rooms. So that included Tom Ford, Martin Scorsese, Sofia Coppola, Regina King, and others. And it's just so cool. And April, you actually were there on Monday at the press preview. I'm so jealous. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about what that was like, that experience? That I think that's your first Met opening preview. Yes, 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 yes. And uh, let me just say it was a little bit of an intense day. And I don't think that I was the only one that felt that way, but in a really good way. So I actually went to the morning like portion of that that whole day when the Met Gala was staged. And I met up with fellow fashion historian Annette Becker, who is the curator of the Texas Fashion Collection. And I knew that she was going to be there because they had loaned some pieces. So we decided to like meet outside and just kind of like be each other's like buddies for 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 viewing that day. And we were very surprised at how much security there was at that event. It was 
insane. And I think that we will get to that in a second. Like we had to go, we had to have our bags inspected, of course. We had to have, go through metal detectors. Um, and then there was like security dogs everywhere. There was security everywhere. So uh, while we wandered through the exhibition, uh, we actually ran into several past dressed guests. Chaney McKnight was there. Natalie Nadell was there. Nancy McDonald was there. So it was really cool. And we had like this little kind of like fashion historian community crew that was that was there for all of it. And then I think we're going to get to the exhibition here in a second. But after the exhibition, there were remarks and Andrew Bolton gave a little speech. And I just kind of wanted to quote him here really quick to explain the whole concept of the exhibition. Uh, he, he said in the press preview, quote, the stories are grounded in the complex layers of history of the rooms and relate them through cultural, political, and personal connections. Each story is presented in the form of a cinematic vignette that enhances the intimate and immersive aspects of the rooms and activates their histories in compelling and unexpected ways. While each vignette is presented as its own distinctual film, the exhibition itself is experienced as a feature film with interconnected stories. So that's just a little bit about like how the show was constructed. And the very first piece that you see when you walk in is a coat that was worn by George Washington. And then after that, you see another coat that was worn by Abe Lincoln when he was assassinated. And that's a Brooks Brothers coat. And this, once again, brings us back to dressed. Right next to the Brooks Brothers coat that Lincoln wore is another Brooks Brothers coat that an enslaved man wore that Jonathan Michael Square has already discussed on the show. So you can go back to that episode if you want to learn a little bit more. Yeah, and I think I was reading something about the Abe Lincoln coat um, because some, it's something that people are going to find very interesting is there's like, it's basically shredded, I guess, because people were allowed to come in and cut off pieces of Abe Lincoln's coat and keep them as like keepsakes. As a souvenir. As souvenirs <laughs> of this president. So yeah, super interesting. And obviously they are not shying away from this complex dialogue about the history of textile and clothing production in America, because as Jonathan Michael has so brilliantly shown us through his research, you know, that company created clothing for enslaved people as well. So I'm glad to hear that that is something that's front and center. And then I also, I think it was Natalie who posted a picture of an Elizabeth Keckley gown, which was also on view. Yes, 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 yes. Dressed History, one of our very first episodes was on Elizabeth Keckley, who is really, I have to say, now getting her due. Of course, so many wonderful scholars um, like Elizabeth Way have done work on Elizabeth Keckley, but she just is not that well known beyond maybe the fashion history inner circle. So it's awesome to see her work being front and center. She was, of course, an in formerly enslaved woman who bought her freedom because of her dressmaking talents. And she went on to become this incredible fashion designer in Washington, D.C. And one of her most notable clients was none other than Mary Todd Lincoln. So so cool to see her work. And that dress belonged to Mary Todd Lincoln. That's on view. And Natalie and I were both like, it's tiny. Like we didn't expect it to be so tiny as compared to like the photos that we see of Mary Todd Lincoln, but like the bodice is itty, 
itty bitty. And that could be like a whole entire thing. So. Yeah, yeah. I think it's been altered, but um, I'm not entirely sure. But because there is an image of her wearing that textile and it's a, like a low bodice version of it. But yeah, just so cool. Such an immersive history to for them to present that like right off the bat is very promising for this exhibition. What else did you see, April? Well, there was lots of examples of work that people we've already talked about on the show, including Elizabeth Keckley, of course. Um, we've mentioned Anne Lowe a couple times on the show. She has a whole period room to herself, as does Elizabeth Hawes which is, you know, one of my all-time faves, Love Lizzie. And in the Battle of Versailles room, which uh, Tom Ford actually curated, there's a very funny vignette set up where a gown by Stephen Burroughs is like fighting a YSL gown, like as a reference to the Battle of Versailles. Really beautiful. And then also too, I learned a ton at this exhibition because one of the things that they actually sought out to do is to also highlight lesser known designers and especially dressmakers. So there were some names that I didn't know, Marjorie Bullhagen, Maria Hollander, and Fanny Chris Payne. So I actually want to go back and see the show again because I don't think I took away every single thing that I'm eventually going to get out of it. So I'll probably be back at least another time, if not two more times. So... Well, and so excited to hear that Anne Lowe has her own room because, again, like Elizabeth Keckley, Anne Lowe is maybe, again, more known than Elizabeth Keckley, but only as the designer of Jackie O's wedding dress, perhaps. And so I'm sure that room, it sounds like it's expanding the narrative. She's a Black designer um, from the 50s and 60s. Again, hugely successful, dressing the elite of the elite. And why haven't we heard of her, right? So it's really cool to see them highlighting these incredible designers who really, you know, let's see an Anlo exhibition, right? Mm-hmm. And Andrew kind of like addressed this again. Um, he said, quote, the stories told in the rooms challenge and complicate perceived histories. Stories that highlight and have been forgotten, overlooked, or relegated to the annals of fashion history. Ultimately, the aim of the exhibition is to spotlight the creativity of these individuals and in the process, offer a more nuanced and less monolithic reading of fashion. So, and it did. That show delivered. Like, everybody walked out. Chaney and I, were. we ended up in the, like, bumping into each other, like, in the last room. And her eyes just got really big. And I was like, I know. She's like, it's really good. <laughs> so, yeah. Everyone was very impressed. Yeah, and of course, expanding that narrative of fashion history is something we talk about time and time again on the show. And expanding that narrative is something that we, you know, talked a lot about in for the first incarnation lexicon of fashion, because it only included one indigenous designer, and uh, that was Karina Emmerich, past dressed guest, fashion designer, activist, literally the only indigenous designer in the exhibit, which was problematic. So I was really pleased to hear that they did include indigenous designers in this narrative, although maybe not as many as we hoped, but there are three indigenous designers featured in Anthology of Fashion, and that includes Lloyd Kiva New, who I had never ever heard of, um, probably is going to get a dressed episode <laughs> coming up. <laughs> a pioneering Cherokee fashion designer who earned national acclaim for his work. 
in the 50s and 60s. He did like these really wonderful printed textiles, clothing, accessories, and dedicated his life and career to advancing Native American art and creative expression. And so, like I said, Def getting an episode. And then Jody Archambault, who is a beadwork artist, um, is part of the exhibition as well. And then we should also mention that 70 new ensembles were added or traded out in Lexicon, which again is downstairs. And I believe that includes um, an Andre Leon Talley caftan. Yay! <laughs> and then, of course, the work of four Indigenous designers. So previously where there had only been one Indigenous designer, there are now five. Jamie Akuma, Evan Ducharme, Margaret Roach-Wheeler, and Section 35's Justin Lewis are joining Karina Emmerich in that exhibition. Yay, we love it. Okay, so I was referencing earlier that we were going to talk about why there was so much security at the event. Well, it was because it was the Secret Service. And (laughs) (laughs) we all were like being surveilled by the Secret Service like the entire time. And that was because the First Lady of the United States was there. So Dr. Jill Biden also spoke. And I just found that's really touching. And I'm like, oh, she might just be a little bit of a fashion historian. She really got it. She said, quote, beautiful or dissident, finely crafted or thrown together, our style helps express things that can't be put into words. The history of American design is rich and deep. It is a story of innovation and ingenuity of rebellion and renewal. It has often been written by those in the shadows, not recognized for their influence in art, but here at the Met today, their stories are being told. So it was lovely. Yeah, dress listeners. And I think you have until August or September to check out this exhibition. Write to us, let us know, tag us in your photos. We're really curious to see what you think. And I will also try to get out there at some point to see it. So let's switch up the actual exhibition and let's talk about the event itself. The event that was held in the evening, Anna Wintour always assigns a theme, a theme that she expects the, the guests that are invited to dress to. And this year, the theme was gilded glamour. And being fashion historians, you know, Cass and I's minds immediately go to the gilded age, right? Which was like this particular period of American history that just followed the Civil War, kind of like circa 1870 to maybe like 1900-ish 1890s. And of course, I think a lot of people have been watching The Gilded Age on Netflix. Yeah, I think she wanted us to reference that. (laughs) I don't think everybody thought the same thing. So, (laughs) um, and we're going to definitely going to get into that here in a second. So that was the theme that everybody was supposed to adhere to for the dress code, which was also white tie. And I was talking to some of the Vogue staff when um, I was there and they were like, oh, well, she asked us all, all of us to wear only red or pink, which I thought was interesting. That is interesting. And I wonder why. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the Gilded Age, I think everyone's mind is there because of the HBO show, but also it's like this period in American history that's defined by like incredible wealth and opulence um, that's really encapsulated in that HBO TV show. There's a lot of new wealth. There's these, you know, like titans of industry and steel and oil and railroads that are making billions of dollars. It's just like this grand period, right? And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that meant for everyone and not just the wealthy few and a little bit later on. 
But I'm really excited. April, of course, we have not talked. We've been trying to talk about it and then keep saying to each other, no, we have to get to keep this conversation for Save our dress it. listeners. Save it for the show. <laughs> yeah. Save it for the show. Save it for the show. Our listeners will probably remember we were not very pleased with last year's red carpet. So um, the sept- it was August or September, I can't remember. But the first incarnation um, that accompanied the Lexicon opening, there was another Met Gala last year. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, you might want to check it out. I mean, we were just in shock, I think, that so few people wore American design. Yeah. I mean, it's the theme of the show. <laughs> So who didn't wear American design last night, Cass? Do you want to lead with that one? So, yeah. So I think it was really interesting. So I would say I I came into the Met Gala, which I did watch the entire thing with a couple girlfriends. You know, my expectations were like high, but also, you know, tempered a bit by last year. I'm like, okay, what are we going to see, right? I have to say overall, I was very pleased with what I saw on the red carpet. But I think Anna Wintour... (laughs) was literally, so Hamish Bowles and Vanessa Hudgens were hosts of the red carpet. And at the, like they were like the first people that everyone met when they approached. And Anna Wintour is their very first guest. And she basically like, she's like, they're like, what are you wearing? I'm wearing an American tiara and a Chanel dress. And I was like, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, great. Anna Wintour has already made it very clear that we're going to see a lot of European fashion because she is literally the organizer of the event. It is The CI is named after Anna Wintour and she's not even wearing an American designer, which, I mean, I don't know. So anyways, but I was really pleasantly surprised. I'm pretty sure she was wearing Chanel earlier in the day too. Yeah. I think she was wearing a Chanel suit. I think she so. just wears Chanel. I mean, I don't know. I don't know too much about her personal fashion closet, but I know it's a lot of European designers. But we're going to start out talking dress listeners about what we liked, who got it right, who took it literally the theme, who gave more nuanced and clever interpretations. I mean, overall, like I said, I was really impressed with the fashion history moments, especially on the red carpet. Tons, tons. So good. Stylists have been listening. (laughs) Yes, and the artists themselves and the um, people themselves, you know, really got into this theme. There was lots of literal references to the Gilded Age. So 1880s, there was bustle silhouettes, you know, those giant Jigo sleeves. But April, do you have any favorites? I have a few. Well, okay. So in terms of like, what I thought was a very, very smart and fresh take on that overall kind of like, 18 like late 1880s early 1890s silhouette was Anak Yai. Uh, she was in custom Michael Kors and it was exquisite and it was like taking that entire silhouette and making it clean and modern but like the reference was very very clear and the whole thing was um, covered in either pink sequins or something that made it look shimmery and metallic. And then she had on the long gloves, which was like part of that whole kind of 1880s look as well. And that was that was actually one of my favorites because um, you and I, of course, like went through all these photos and, and I didn't see her look on a lot of the articles that I looked at, but that was one of my faves. What about you? Oh, and I just had to look that up because I missed that entirely. I mean, there's hundreds of people there, right? And so, of course, I yeah. was I was actually watching the event, so I was at the mercy of the cameras <laughs> showing me who who was wearing what. But something actually that surprised me that I found lovely um, was what Hillary Clinton wore 
she hadn't been to a Met Gala in 21 years. And, you know, at first glance, it's a very simple dress, kind of off the shoulder neckline. It's kind of like a red satin number um, made by Joseph Altazura. But when she talked about it, you learned that it was actually the hem and the neckline are embroidered with names of inspiring American women from history. So that was really, really cool. And she worked with Joseph Altazura and he was inspired by friendship quilts that women made for each other in the 19th century. And so I thought that was a really subtle, but beautiful and touching tribute to the theme. Yes. And and the pictures are out there, but you have to look closely to see the embroidery because the embroidery is actually the same kind of like shade of burgundy as the dress. So it's very, it's very subtle. Yeah. Maybe um, one of my next favorites is not so subtle. And everybody that listens to the show all the time knows that I'm obsessed with Janelle Monet. They did Gilded Glamour from the Future. And it was this very shimmery sort of sequined black number, but then they had on a beaded headdress over it. And it was like, it was perfection. It was, it hit that note of like futuristic, but also like a reference to the past as well. I liked it a lot. And that was Ralph Lauren. Yeah. And they talked about it being inspired by like Afrofuturism too, which was really cool. Another recording artist that I am obsessed with is Lizzo, um, who wore Tom Brown and brought her flute to the red carpet and played it. I mean, she is a full-figured goddess of fashion. She is unapologetic. She is doing so many incredibly wonderful things for body positivity. And she is just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful in so many ways. And she just brought like all the fire and all the attitude and all the fun to the red carpet. She had such a blast. And she worked with Tom Brown, who produced this incredible hand embroidered puff coat for her. Um, very inspired by the embroidery of the 19th century, like those magnificent opera coats. So opulent. Took over 1,200 man hours to create. She wears it over this like court black corset dress. It was kind of like this one piece number um, that just accentuated her curves. And she said that she felt like a piece of art. And Vogue actually did a lot of really wonderful like video vignettes to accompany the red carpet. And so they interviewed people like Tom Brown and Joseph Altazura actually uh, about the process of making these garments. And you can check those videos out on Vogue.com. I was just looking at some of them this morning, to be honest. Another wonderful fashion history reference was the creation and collaboration between Sarah Jessica Parker and Christopher John Rogers. Um, And she had on this very full bouffant, kind of color blocked, but it was like almost like a gingham was blown out into like a bigger proportion dress. And she had on a wildly wonderful hat. Philip Tracy, every time. <laughs> of course. They have a long-standing working relationship. But uh, Christopher John Rogers says that the dress was actually inspired by Elizabeth Keckley. So once again, we're going fashion history full circle here, friends. And that's that's very exciting for me and Cass to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just, you know, for more and more people to keep catching on to these designers and the more that they become part of the mainstream conversation, I mean, we're seeing fashion history and that traditional narrative that often, so often centers white elite designers is changing in front of our very eyes. So it's a very exciting um, thing to see. And that was a wonderful, wonderful reference um, on the red carpet. Some of my other favorites of the night, I mean... 
Blake Lively, you know, there was European designers who paid tribute to America and Blake Lively's dress was part of that. It was a Versace number and she was literally the Statue of Liberty. That was one of my all-time favorites of <laughs> the night, for sure. <laughs> and she says that, you know, she really wanted to look at the city that I love and the architecture rather than just the fashion. And so she had this wonderful moment on the red carpet where her green dress which was, you know, based on the colors of the Statue of Liberty patinaed. So they like undraped her dress and suddenly it was this like copper patinaed beautiful number. So that was really fun. That was one of those more literal interpretations. And I thought that was a clever way for a European designer to pay homage. So if you're going to be a European designer on the red carpet, at least pay homage to the theme, right? So I thought that was a creative way of doing that. April, not everyone was maybe as successful. Mm, maybe. Remember when I said earlier, like, some people got the Gilded Age bit of it, but sometimes sometimes it was just too literal, right? They, they just wanted to go gold. So we had all these golden girls <laughs> on the runway, of course. Um, actually, my favorite was Carl Delvine, who literally painted her body gold, and she had on gold pasties. And she was wearing this red, very kind of like tightly tailored um, Dior Haute Couture suit, pantsuit. And then at one point she takes off her suit jacket and she's completely topless, Yeah, <laughs> which was a moment and amazing. <laughs> Another um, European design house paying homage to the theme was Moomoo. Emma Corrin, um, so Princess Diana on the crown, <laughs> and paid homage to the King of Dudes, which this is one of my favorite moments from the red carpet because I'd never heard of this person. And now he's going to get like some sort of mini sewed. But um, she paid homage and she's like on everyone's worst dress list because she's in this like huge oversized check coat. She has a top hat on, her ears are like pushed down. But she's literally doing this incredibly creative homage to this quote-unquote king of dues, Evander Barry Wall. He was this New York City Gilded Age era socialite who was obsessed with clothing. So dude is apparently English slang for fashion obsessed men. Um, so kind of yeah, like a it's dandy. Like dandy kind yeah, of. Yeah. Yeah. And I never had known this. So it's super interesting to see how like language changes right throughout the eras and because obviously I don't feel like at least in America we don't use dude in that way at all it has completely different connotation <laughs> but he was this heir to this prosperous rope making business he has there's all these well-publicized fashion contests in the news where he like was battling people for to be king of the dudes. So one day to to win this battle, he changed like 40 times between breakfast and dinner. He was the proud owner of some <laughs> 500 trousers and 5,000 neckties. Um, how have we never heard of this person, April? <laughs> I have no idea. He's like the American Beau Brumel. Yeah. And then he ends up, he ends up like moving to France, um, you know, where he continues the sartorial expression. And then he's very much a contemporary party. I kept thinking of him. He dies in the 40s, like completely broke because he was just one of those lovers of excess. So that was definitely, definitely one of my favorite looks. Yeah, that seems to be a theme within dandyism, actually. He's not the only one that was fashion-obsessed and that kind of happened to at the end. Speaking of fashion-obsessed and being obsessed with each other, next up on my list, again, European, but Alessandro Michele and Jared Leto showed up in matching outfits, <laughs> well, which yeah. is hilarious. Yeah, it <laughs> and, was. Like, their hair was styled the same. They have on the same jacket, the same pants, 
same shirt. Um, the jacket is this kind of like tan, very specific, kind of like almost like floral pattern, it looks like. That's very kind of like Victorian period. Um, and then they have on a white shirt and these kind of like burgundy satin bow ties. And they're styled completely exactly alike. And I thought that was Hilarious. So obviously they are wearing Gucci because Alessandro is the designer for Gucci. But Jared on the red carpet says, when asked about their outfit, double Victorian trouble, that's all you need to know. (laughs) (laughs) And they were really cute when they were being interviewed by Vogue too on the red carpet. But what's hilarious about Jared Leto is that he was like misidentified on the red carpet. So I can't remember what actor was wearing Iris Van Herpen. Please forgive me, dress listeners. But um, they came out in this like resplendent Iris Van Herpen. They're like surrounded by these wonderful, you know, as Iris does, these like aerodynamic dress sculptures. And because of the makeup and the look, everyone thought it was Jared Leto. And I, of course, did too. And I was so confused because I'm like, he's not wearing Gucci anymore. And then, of course, there's like all this scrambling to like course correct and be like, oh, so sorry, we misidentified you. Obviously, when Jared Leto showed up on the red carpet. So... That was a really fun moment. (laughs) Well, there were some other Gucci moments on the red carpet, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, my favorite, I think, look of the night, Emma Corrin rivals this one. Um, And again, you may be surprised. These aren't American fashion designers, but I think they did the theme really well. Billie Eilish showed up on theme, and I think she got it so on the nose. So she wears an upcycled Gucci dress. She's really socially and eco-conscious in her clothing choices. So she was very, um, you know, quick to point out that this was upcycled. So she was wearing basically, she's like a Tussaud portrait. So if you know who Tussaud is, you know, all those women in those wonderful iconic 1870s and 1880s portraits of those corseted, bustled gowns. And not only did she wear this wonderful gown, she also posed. So every time you see her, she's like making the Tussaud pose with her derriere out. And, um, you know, she just did such a wonderful job of encapsulating that theme and and that attitude um, and really paying homage to it in a way that I loved. Yeah, it was very fun. And also fun was her brother Phineas's outfit as well. They looked great together. He had a little Victorian gentleman vibe going on there as well. And also in Gucci, but his Gucci was from 2017. So they were both wearing either upcycled or vintage and they were being like very specific about it. So much appreciated. Thank you. Yeah. And there was a couple of people who like went out of their way to make those types of statements. Amy Poehler, for instance, was accompanied by a climate activist and jewelry designer. And I know there was a couple other actresses, I think, that wore like clothing they'd previously worn before. So, you know, not huge, huge waves, but big enough to where these stars are making statements that are hopefully making people sit up and pay attention to the ethics of fashion. <laughs> so, right. Which kind of transitions us into kind of what was problematic, perhaps, about the Gilded Age theme, um, which mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, is it's literally the embodiment of excess and unbridled wealth. I mean... This still applies to us today. There is a huge wealth gap in our country specifically. You know, this is a period that's enjoyed predominantly by the white upper class society. So that excludes a lot of people. Someone I found to be perfectly on theme, April, was Elon Musk. (laughs) So (laughs) not in a good way. 
No. But, you know. I, I looked at some of the videos him. I'm like, is he okay? <laughs> but, you know, him just being there as this billionaire, like the richest man in the world, you know, kind of speaks to how the Gilded Age theme was kind of actually out of touch with the time and place we live in now with this wealth gap that's so glaringly huge. And something I really appreciated by multiple stars on the red carpet is they did not shy away from that commentary. You know, how basically the t- these titans of industries in the Gilded Age built their wealth on enslaved African-Americans, um, the lower classes. <laughs> and, the, and the exhibition like straight up deals with that. Oh, that's exciting. Which is like a little bit like of a disconnect between like how people showed up and then like the content of the show. So, but surprisingly, people showed up on the red carpet and were like immigrant, like talking about immigrant workers. I really love Riz Ahmed. He showed up, and at first you look at him and you're like, "What is going on?" He's literally wearing a white tank top and like an open shirt and like wellies. Like his his jeans are stuffed into his pants are stuffed into wellies. But he was literally like paying homage to the immigrant workers who kept the Gilded Age going, which is was really, really a beautiful statement. It's like these rich people, their lives were built on the backs of immigrant enslaved peoples. Chinese workers were brought in in the millions to build the railroads of America. Quest Love and Gabrielle Union both were like, you know, the 1900s weren't quite the same for Black people in this country. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> um, both of them made a point of of making of those those statements. So, um, I thought that was really really cool. Yeah. I also really liked Alicia Keys's ensemble because you know she has this on she she is from New York, uh, she has this kind of ongoing love affair with New York, and she's she's not shy about it. But she had on this deep dark silver strapless number, but it was the cape that she had on over it that was insane. Like it was black satin, and it had two hundred thousand crystals that had been applied to it. And basically outlining the, like, structure of the New York City skyline. And a lot of those really big skyscrapers were built during that period. And that that piece was by Ralph Lauren as well. So Yeah, and that cape was ridiculous in that it, like, was, like, form-fitted to her body. (laughs) Yeah, it was, like, form-fitted to her body. Like, you couldn't see where the closure was at the top. So I don't know if it went on over her head, but it was just so beautiful. And I heard her talking about, you know, she's really, she's from New York. And again, just paying homage to this city that she absolutely loves and encapsulating that in this incredible garment in collaboration with Ralph Lauren was really beautiful. Yeah. I loved it. I met her once before. Oh, I love her so much. (laughs) She was lovely. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So talented. And again, just such a positive force in this world um, and making change in so many wonderful ways. I do have to say one of my other favorite looks of the night, um, you know, because we did talk so much about the lack of Indigenous representation last time on the red carpet. And again, there was a lack of Indigenous representation on the red carpet. As far as I can tell, just like last time, the only Indigenous person invited to the Met, or at least that they highlighted fashion-wise, was Kwana Chasing Horse, who is um, an Oglala Lakota and Han Gwich'in model, activist, and 
as far as I can tell, the lone Indigenous representation on the red carpet for a second time in a row. But she was at the invitation of Prabal Gurung, and she was wearing an upcycled gown. And she was actually very positive about this experience. She said that the fact that um, Prabal wanted me to feel seen with this year's theme means the world to me because Indigenous people have been overlooked and misrepresented, let alone represented at all. And she wore this beautiful handmade piece by Antelope Women Designs made with, quote, earth elements that my people used for millennia, dentalium shells, porcupine quills, tan smoked hide, and the beadwork included teepees and traditional colors to make me feel less alone and in a way surrounded by my community. So that was a really beautiful moment on this year's red carpet as well. And perhaps a beautiful way to end before we talk about the most controversial dress of the night. You all (laughs) knew this was coming. Everyone's just been like, why have I not talked about this yet? Oh, we're going to talk about it. We are closing out the show with it, actually, because there is quite a lot to say. (laughs) And of course, we're referring to Kim Kardashian wearing Marilyn Monroe's original 1962 sequin gown by Jean-Louis that she wore when she sung Happy Birthday to JFK. Um, So let's get into this, Cass. (laughs) Yeah, so just a little bit about the dress. Um, it was it sold for four point eight million dollars, I believe, in like two thousand sixteen or fifteen, setting a world like a world record for the most ex- one of the most expensive dresses um, sold at auction. Interesting in that this birthday um, gathering was actually one of her last public appearances before she died. She died just like a couple months after this. It's certainly one of those like iconic fashion moments. If you talk about this dress, people know what you're talking about. Um, It's this really slinky, almost nude number. It's covered with, you know, millions of little crystals. It's just fitted her figure like a glove. Absolutely beautiful. She had to be sewn into the dress before she went on stage to do the little performance for the president at that time. They hand sewed her into the dress. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it fits her like a glove. After being sold at auction, I'm not sure the logistics there, but it ended up in the collection of all places, Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. So (laughs) I feel like that helps explain a lot as to how it actually ended up in Kim Kardashian's body. It does. Um, Private institution. Yeah. (laughs) This wasn't like a accredited museum collection of fashion and textiles that it came from. It was this other entity. Um, I think that uh, that doesn't necessarily make it right. Uh, The whole fashion conservation community has had a lot to say about this the last few days. Oh, when she walked out, I mean, my jaw was on the floor because the whole time I'm thinking, okay, how can Kim Kardashian, you know, obviously she just wants to top everything she's done, right? So last year she showed up in Balenciaga covered head to toe. Like, no, the only thing you could see of her body was her hair, you know, the back. Um, so that was quite a shocking moment, but nothing could have prepared me as a fashion historian for her wearing an actual historic garment by the most iconic American actress in history on the red carpet. So, you know, my my jaw hit the floor and then I literally was just like, Fashion conservators everywhere's brains are exploding right now. (laughs) And that they did. Yeah. We saw instant commentary from people all over Instagram, like outrage. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. And let's get into that a little bit, April, because I think what you're seeing is a lot of people um, like Sarah Scaturo, for instance, who was the former conservator, head conservator of the CI, former dress guest, um, incredibly important person in the fashion conservator community, um, kind of as like a head of why fashion needs to be preserved in museums. I think, I don't think a lot of people maybe know that We've really had to fight for our field for decades now. Fashion for so long was like not valued or considered valuable within like the academic community, within museums. People really had to work hard to show that it's worthy of preservation. And they've developed fields like fashion conservation around preserving historical garments. And then to see such a treasured, iconic garment being worn by someone on the red carpet. I mean, what does that mean, April, in terms of like what happened to that garment just by putting it on her body? All right. Well, I mean, first of all, for any of our listeners who don't know, like if you work in a museum fashion collection, you're not sitting around trying on the clothes. That is like the number one thing that you do not do. And in fact, like there are all these steps that go into actually the care and the preservation. And it all depends on the object, um, the materials that are in that object. So this is this is like this is an actual job for people to to preserve these items. So any work of art, they're yeah, treated with the exact same care. Exactly. So for her to actually put it on right? It's stressing out the textiles. Uh, That dress was created to be a nude dress. So it's like layers of tulle and all of these crystals. It's stressing the dress out, not to mention the fact that like makeup and body fluids, just like anything is going to do it damage, right? And I know in the press, there's been a lot said about the fact that she only wore it for a few minutes and then changed into a replica. Well, then what is the point? Yeah. Just wear the replica. <laughs> so it was almost like this weird kind of like power play in my mind that she could she could have access to it, which I guess in some way is in keeping with the the theme, theme of the Gilded of the Age and being out of touch <laughs> with reality because it's exactly what you just said. She and if you read her interview with Vogue magazine, she wanted to top what she did last year. And how could she pay homage to the theme? What better way to do that than with a Marilyn Monroe dress? You know, and literally in her mind, that was a tribute. And it was a tribute. I mean, we can't deny that. But also she lives in a world where she can ask for a $5 million dress that is in a museum collection that is the most iconic, one of the most iconic dresses in history. And she is allowed to wear it and given access to it. And I think that was the fear that a lot of conservators expressed is like, is this going to set some sort of new precedent that people, you know, can suddenly ask the CI to borrow a Charles James dress from the 1950s to wear? And we've talked about this. We talked about this in our History of the Met Gala episode. That used to be practiced there. Until like the 60s, at least, um, Mm -hmm. people were doing, you know, were going down runways at the Met Gala and different like fundraising events wearing like Charles Worth gowns. So I think that's the fear is that now this is this new precedent and it's going to set the field back. And and, and, I, and I get the naysayers out there who are going to make the argument that, well, clothing was meant to be worn. Like, 
But once something actually gets formally accessioned into a museum collection, it is no longer a functional garment. It is a piece of art, and, and that is how it is supposed to be treated. Like, there are actually ethical standards and rules that that govern what we do in those contexts. Yeah. So it was a huge violation of that. <laughs> and there is actually a really good LA Times article about conservators' reactions to this that we'll put a link to. Um, Cara Vernell is a longtime independent art conservator specializing in historic dress, and she talked about how, quote, we just don't wear archived historic pieces. <laughs> Obviously, if you have a Charles James hanging in your grandmother's closet and you want to wear it, fine. But something that's archived means it has enough cultural importance that we value it and we want to save it. The dress represents something very important. It's part of our collective cultural heritage, and I'm speechless over it. And she's absolutely right, because even if she did wear it for three minutes, I promise you that that dress is damaged because her body fluids were against it for three minutes. But Edward Meyer, who is the vice president of archives and exhibits at Ripley, gave a 2017 interview who talked about how the original dress had been on the same mannequin for at least 18 years. So sometimes you store dresses on mannequins or on dress forms to preserve their shape. And he he said, you would literally, this is in 2017, you would literally have to cut the dress off to do anything with it. Just touching it, you will lose sequence. It's very fragile. It's thinner than a paper thin dress. Yes. It was created to be that. Exactly. That's why people are are super upset. But I, I'm really glad that you brought up this point about if you own your grandmother's dress um, and it's a different. family heirloom, <laughs> that's a whole different context. And it's really funny that you say that because while, while I was there, I was talking to Lila Ramsey, who um, is at Vogue, and we were just like chatting and stuff. And she's like, oh, I think that you're really going to like this article that I just wrote yesterday that hasn't come out yet. She's like, because like you're a fashion historian. And she's like, it's the whole article is about what Ariana Rockefeller is going to wear to the Met Ball because she actually did wear her grandmother's dress. And it was a dress by Fernando Sarmi, who designed for Elizabeth Arden. And Elizabeth Arden is kind of more or less, more or less now known as like a cosmetics and fragrance maven. But in the past, that there was actually a fashion line that was attached to it as well. But it was Ariana's choice to wear one of her grandmother's dresses. And before she wore it, it was completely sent to fashion and textile conservators who did all this work to it so that they knew that she could wear it. Um, She styled it with a vintage bag and jewelry, which were also family heirlooms. But this is an entirely different context. Like, she owns this dress. So even though it is vintage, why not? And, And she did the work in advance to make sure that the dress would live on. So... Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Two different things. Yeah. And the difference being that, you know, the Marilyn Monroe dress lives as this cultural moment collectively, you know, within our society and beyond. And Kevin Jones, who's the curator of the Fitton Museum at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, also a past dress guest, gave an interview to the LA Times. And he said, you know, our job is to get that garment to the next generation with as little damage as possible so that 500 years from now, these objects are around to talk about our history, our collective history as people, design, technology, arts, and culture. And I mean, that's a really interesting perspective because if you think about like our oldest garments um, in these museum collections, right? Like garments from like the 16th century and 500 years from now, 
Marilyn Monroe's dress is going to be a five, you know, a 500 year old garment. And what did this do to that garment? What damage did it do? You know, do I think that museum collections are going to be suddenly open to billionaires and millionaires to come and go as they please? I don't, I do not think that. I think Ripley's is a private museum. It's for family fun and attraction. It's built on shock and entertainment value. And now they're saying that this gown, because of the added Kim Kardashian value, is now worth $10 million. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> and they said, they put out a statement and they said, we're truly proud to be the stewards of such an iconic artifact and are excited to be able to add it to its cultural significance with Kim Kardashian, who's sharing the story of Marilyn Monroe and her iconic career with an entirely new generation. Um, so, you know... Now that dress, though, April, forever will be go down in history. Just increased in quote-unquote value. But now it's always going to be the dress that Marilyn and then Kim Kardashian wore. So I think it's offended a lot of people's sensibilities. People who don't care about its, like, actual preservation are more offended that Kim Kardashian as this, like, 21st century cultural icon. How dare she step on the legacy of Marilyn Monroe um, is another part of the like outrage around it, which I think is not great um, considering people have really come out like criticizing her body and her personally and like all of these things comparing her to Marilyn um, in a way that I don't find productive or healthy um, conversation. Um, but it's super, super interesting nonetheless. Yeah, and and and, and it set the internet and social media <laughs> on fire. Absolutely. Um, trust listeners, I'm sure you all have your own opinions. Um, you can certainly share them with us um, via social media. You know, if anything, all of this confirms is something we've already know as listeners of Dressed, as hosts of Dressed, that clothing matters. And the fact that so many people responded to this clothing moment proves that. Mm-hmm. Before we sign off today, I think that Cass has some extra things that she would like to share. Yes, mainly just one extra thing is that if you're going to hear some classic dress episodes coming up in alternating weeks over the next six weeks, it is because I am taking maternity leave to have a baby. Yes. Um, this hopefully is my last episode I'm recording <laughs> before he makes his appearance in this world. But yeah, super excited to take a little break, but I will be back this summer. Yes. So you guys are going to be stuck with me for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we pre-recorded quite a bit. We should be good, but we'll see. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Can't yeah, yeah. really. Yeah. Can't really plan these things. Um, but there is a little dressed fan coming our way soon. So maybe fashion historian in the making. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that does it for us today, dressed listeners. Please consider having your own fashion moment next time you get dressed. If you would like to write to us, we always love hearing from you and you can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com or you can also DM us on Instagram, which is at dressed underscore podcast where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. And thank you as always to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pagram and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. We will catch you on Tuesday.
Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.